0: Member FDIC.
1: The Long Road to Peace in Ukraine. This is Episode 79 of En Route. Welcome to Enroute, the podcast at the intersection of church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. It's been a while, a few weeks, a little bit longer than usual for, for between episodes. I've um, been busy actually putting together this episode, and um, I'm hopefully putting together the final touches of something that will be both a podcast and hopefully video Um that will be dealing with uh, a religious aspect on the war in um, Ukraine. So just kind of a little heads up, but that's kind of why things were taking so long and also trying to find um, guests for the podcast. Some people I was hoping to look for didn't uh, pan out, but um, we do have someone today and the person that I, we will be talking to today is someone um, that I've known for nearly 30 years. Uh, Dan Buttry is an American Baptist minister, and he has worked in peacemaking efforts um, for several decades. In 2020, he retired from his role as the Global Consultant for Peace and Justice uh, for the International Ministries of the, of the American Baptist Churches. Um, his peacemaking efforts has um, basically had him travel the world uh working with Baptists, other Christian groups, other faith uh training people in conflict transformation um and also working with grassroots communities um, and as well as educational institutions. He's also taken part in various um uh mediations of uh, various conflicts around the world, including uh places. Um, such as Myanmar, Burma, and India. So in this episode, I talk to Dan about his experiences in Ukraine. Um, this is the place that he, he, along with his wife, Sharon, who is also a peacemaker in her own right, uh, that they've visited many, many times. And so um, he has worked with a number of people that are involved in peacemaking efforts around Ukraine. And we talk about those journeys uh, what he has learned and how that relates to the current uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So let's give a listen to Dan Buttry. it has it's good to um hear from you it's been a while since we've talked and so i'm glad that we have this chance to kind of talk about this very important issue
2: so um yeah my entry into ukraine actually comes from a person named fyodor reichen uh fyodor was uh He was a student of uh, Miroslav Wolf. I don't know if that name rings any bells. Yeah. 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 His book Exclusion and Embrace is one of the best theological books I've ever read, ever. But uh, uh, Fyodor uh, had become a Ukrainian Baptist missionary to Bosnia. And uh, he had heard about me through some common friends and... uh, he asked me to come to Bosnia uh, twice. I came and uh, uh, worked with him and we had some amazing experiences, a lot of it dealing with the post-war uh, situation and the trauma and the, the divisions that people had. And so Fjordor has this real heart for peacemaking and uh, reconciliation. Uh, he's also got a very both ecumenical and interfaith uh, perspective. He, You know, one of his best friends was the local uh, Muslim imam, and, you know, we met him. So uh, Fyodor uh, then went to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary, which is located just outside Kiev. Um, And it uh, is basically uh, kind of Baptist and Pentecostal. Uh, folks, okay. and he he was the dean for what the uh, I forget what they call it exactly, but it's kind of a distance learning program where students fr- they, they they taught in Russian, so they had students from across the f- former Soviet Union um, and uh, including Russia, uh, and uh, they would come twice a year uh, to uh, the seminary for intensive two week. Uh, times and then they'd go back and you know have other stuff that would be going on in their home context um uh and so Fjordor is overseeing all of that and he invited me to come uh every other year I would teach a one-week intensive class so the, on conflict transformation um mm-hmm. uh, and uh I mean it was morning afternoon and you know just the whole very intense time um and uh, so I think I did five of those, the, the last one being in 2019. Um, and then uh, one of the students early on was a woman named Veronika Volashina. Uh, Veronika uh, was, was uh, <laughs> both a student, but she also helped translate the class that I was okay. teaching, you know, because she was such a good translator. Uh, between English, Russian, and Ukrainian. And um, so she, uh, we got to know each other a little bit more because working as translator. But then um, uh, she ended up coming. uh, I went to Ukraine for a special 10-day training in conflict transformation uh, trainers. We call it TCTT. I call it the grad school of the University of the Streets because we teach uh, uh, everything from getting to... You know, win-win solutions, mediation, dealing with diversity, mainstream margin is kind of the terminology we use, um, experiential education, power dynamics, uh, Mm -hmm. nonviolent struggle, uh, trauma and uh, trauma transformation and reconciliation, and, and, and the spirituality, dealing with all those things kind of woven through it. It's 10 days, very intense. And uh, Veronika was there. We did it at the seminary. Uh, and we had, we had some other folks from Ukraine, but we also had, you know, people from Middle East, Africa. I co-facilitated with an African a Zimbabwean friend uh, who uh, kind of I've mentored over the years, uh, uh, Lancelot Mateo Lance. And uh, so uh, we had a, a, a great time. Uh, out of that veronika she became one of our superstars uh, and she she lives in the city of dnipro which is um, in eastern ukraine and in eastern ukraine there's kind of like i don't know how this is going to look right in terms of but this is east east over here Mm -hmm. eastern ukraine has this kind of crescent of provinces that have been involved in the war there and and you know russia supporting it and and Russian volunteers fighting along with the Russian ethnic uh, folks in Ukraine and Nipro is like right here it's not in the war zone but it's in the uh kind of it's it's the place very very close to it and uh, and Veronika was doing uh uh mediation work but she she uh, uh very involved in the community and she brought together people from the war zone, uh, to do workshops, uh, uh, trauma healing and, and other kinds of, uh, things related to that. And that's a whole long story, but, um, uh, we did that twice. And then later Sharon came with me and we did it a third time in, uh, in Dnipro, uh, with Veronica and Sharon and I leading and, and we did all a whole bunch of different things. uh, uh but, uh, Veronika also then, and in 2019, Veronika and Sharon and I went to Kiev, back to Kiev, and and did, did training uh, with one of our uh, 10-day training graduates uh, uh, in Kiev with all kinds of uh, Christian folks. Uh, I shouldn't say Christian, Protestant Christian folks. Mm-hmm. We might have had a few other folks in there, in the mix, but um, it was just really... Um, Great stuff. Great stuff. And uh, so our last time there was in 20 September, excuse me, November 2019, just before COVID hit. Uh, but also uh, we retired. I had been serving as a uh, global missionary with international ministries of American mm-hmm. Baptist churches. And so um, uh, doing peace work around the world. And, and Ukraine was one of the places, you know, I also did peace work a lot in various parts of Africa, particularly Kenya and uh, Ethiopia and Liberia, um, uh, quite a bit in uh, the Middle East, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Egypt, um, and then also in in Asia, mostly in Northeast India, Myanmar, uh, Thailand, Philippines. So those have been most of my areas and then a little bit elsewhere. But so Ukraine, L.A. and Republic of Georgia, which is very similar, you know, Mm -hmm. former soviet republic that russia has invaded uh twice and uh and um uh, so anyway um that was the context uh uh so these two people have especially been close to me Fyodor, uh fjordor also took me to uh, because they were working in all the former soviet republics and had students coming in um they the seminary established uh Programs in some of those places uh particularly kyrgyzstan mm-hmm. and then later tajikistan and so fyodor took me along with him uh to do programming uh training in those in those uh two two central asian countries um and uh so that was uh uh that was the context so now what's going on uh it's just been heartbreaking um uh, Nipro uh, first a couple uh, about Veronika. Uh, she also became uh, uh, felt a call to pastoral ministry. And women in ministry are not very respected, and and uh, there's very little place for them in Ukrainian churches of any kind. You know, Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. She's kind of Pentecostal background, and uh, and so she. Uh, she started this house church and uh during after one of the trainings she wanted to have an ordination service. So I I came prepared to do the ordination for her. And she had two male mentors who also participated, which was really cool to have Ukrainian men participate in ordinating this woman. And we had a we had a man come from the war zone for the training that we were in. And he just loved it. And when he found out we were doing an ordination for Verniki, he asked if he could join. So it was cool that we had three Ukrainian male ministers who participated in ordaining her. I thought that was pretty radical. And uh, so uh, very close ties to her. Well, she lives alone uh, in one of those high-rise buildings that you've seen that have been getting you know bombed, bombed and shelled you know. and all that. And she decided that she wanted to... Uh, she left to move in with her parents who are in a more, you know, kind of small town, rural kind of setting outside of Dnipro. But then just a few days ago, she decided that she wanted to leave. Uh, she has a son in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and uh, she just felt like she, it was a difficult decision. And she's now made it, uh, I think she's last day, had confirmed from her was a city in Western Ukraine near Lviv. Um, uh, And I've been to Lviv once for Baptist, the Eastern European Baptist Federation meetings there. But um, uh, so she's trying to get out and, you know, we're in contact almost every day. Uh, Fyodor, meanwhile, the seminary, is is on one of the main routes where uh, Russians have been uh, advancing. Mm-hmm. And some of the neighborhoods where faculty and staff live have become the combat zones, you know, where the f- frontline fighting is taking place. Uh, the seminary evacuated almost everybody, but they have this uh, small crew. I don't want to say skeleton crew because, you know, just right now that's not a good word. <laughs> yeah, not the best <laughs> choice of words, yeah. Say so but it's it's includes the kitchen staff, who all decided they wanted to stay and feed people, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. so they're feeding both some of the people in the Ukrainian resistance, but also you know old people, children. They they, they even go out into the community and find where people are, and Fyodor, Fyodor lost his wife uh, uh, to COVID about a year ago. And uh, uh so he's he's got two adult children. Fyodor decided to stay and not evacuate and uh saw the the every day the seminary's sending out these uh kind of updates to the people that are in their newsletter network and um and people can send donations. But Fyodor, there's this beautiful post picture you might have seen of Fjordor uh giving uh food to this elderly woman, you know. And uh, so here's this professor of theology, out sharing the love of Jesus amid a war zone, and and I just uh, deeply moved by Fyodor, um, and uh, uh, but that's who I've come to know him as. You know, I'm not surprised by him doing that. Uh, uh, I mean, he is a super heady, you know, egghead theologian kind of <laughs> person, but he practices it. You know, he's got the walk to go with the talk. So,
1: you know, I was looking. Um... Just as we were getting ready to record, it was just an old. Um, I think it was an old journal that you had written for um, international uh, ministries for the American mm-hmm. Baptists, and it was about a recent. At uh, back, this was in twenty seventeen. Of a of oh Trump. yes, um, and it was interesting. You were talking um, that there was a woman there. Um, I hope I get the name right. Is Elena? Um, yes. And that she had done a, you had all done this kind of interesting skit yes. Yes. Um, that you kind of talked about silence and screaming. Yes. And you talked about how the Holy Spirit moved in that yes. experience. Would you mind sharing that? Because I, I think it's. Yeah.
2: Oh, so Elena is from uh, Donetsk, mm-hmm. which was the center of the war in eastern Ukraine, you know. And so, so it was two years at the time and it's still going on, you know, the fighting constantly and she'd lived for two years with artillery shells going off all the time. And, and um, so one of the main stories we've uh, worked with in our training for trauma is uh, from Second Samuel chapter 21, the story of Rizpah, mm-hmm. which is one of those stories that, you know, I had never uh, as a Bible major and as a seminary grad, never even noticed it. It was one of those awful stories. He's, you know, there's an awful story. Uh, it's it's about David killing seven of the sons of Saul. And uh, Rizpah has this vigil, uh, just a couple verses about it, about her, you know, keeping away the animals and the birds and all this kind of stuff from the bodies of her children. And um, at first we used it for a story about, raising the voice from the margins, you know, cause she was ultimate margin in so many ways. And, uh, and, uh, she took this nonviolent action. But, uh, later when Sharon and I studied trauma, uh, we noticed there's all the responses to trauma there. Uh, this other mother lost five sons and she just disappears from the story. Like so many people who are victims <laughs> in a war like this, or, you know, whatever going on in our society, you know, people who are victimized and they just kind of clam up and shit, hold their pain inside themselves and and uh, uh, get stuck. And um, uh, so uh, then we got that example. Then we got the, the Gibeonites who were an ethnic minority group who Saul had massacred many of them basically we'd call it genocide or ethnic cleansing you know that was going on in Israel and uh, God becomes the only advocate for the Gibeonites uh, Mm -hmm. bringing famine upon Israel to be saying you know hey you did this terrible thing and nothing has been done to set it right no justice has been done well the Gibeonites God becomes the advocate but the Gibeonites want to do something else they want to kill the sons of Saul and God's not telling about that at all. It's kind of, kind of got silent as they kind. Of, David, you know, he says, "Oh, that's fine with me," and so they. They're an example of somebody who's traumatized and takes their trauma and and uh, commits violence and uh, against those the perpetrator, you know. And so you nice. have this cycle of violence going on and on. Um, and then there's Rizpa who acts in a transformative way, and and this vigil. And, and, uh, and what's fascinating, the more you dig into the text, is, is that David is transformed by Rizpah's action because he, he goes and gets the bones of Saul and the other sons of Saul who had been killed at the battle of Mount Geboa, brings them to Rizpah, to the woman whose children he had killed. He's, those bones had never been properly buried. And to me, that was an act of public repentance on the part of David saying, you know, and he was trying to do some restitution. He couldn't bring back the dead, but he could honor the dead and restore honor to the family uh, that he had dishonored. And and they, they together, re, re, uh, you know, bury the bones. And what's fascinating is that act uh, created reconciliation between the house of Saul and the house of David, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And later after David died, Solomon's king. After Solomon dies, there's civil war in Israel, and only one tribe stayed with the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and that was Benjamin, Mm -hmm. Saul's tribe. So here's this multi-generational reconciliation and healing that happens at the center of it is this horrible story in the middle of trauma of this marginalized, traumatized woman. So... In the workshops, what we do is we have people read the Bible text with some questions, you know, because, you know, just kind of pause, dig into it, you know, because we never dig into this text. It's so awful. Dig into it, get to the feelings. And then we interview somebody as the, the Marab, who's the first mother, you know, and give voice to her feelings. And then we interview Mr. or Ms. Gibeonite, uh, Gibeon. And, uh, and then we enact the whole story. Um, uh, and i'm usually the 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 narrator and david playing both those roles and i need somebody to be uh rispa when sharon's with me she usually plays rispa she's an amazing rispa but i didn't have her there at this time so i asked for a volunteer uh and we had a break so she came with me Ole, uh, olena came up to me and she volunteered to to do it and i told her the whole thing and she agreed you know she agreed to all of it and so she's sitting with the group uh, as we start the story. And I talk about David, you know, the famine, God praying and God saying, this is this genocide that you haven't dealt with. And so then I go to the person who I'd interviewed as the Gibeonite person. And, and then we go get seven sons of Saul. who are, You know, we just grab people in the group, line them up on these seven chairs, and then we slaughter them, praise God, and go back. And then we kind of wait. And the, the, the woman playing Rizpa, Olena in this case, she she gets up from the group and she's like this tightly wound spring in her body language. And just just she 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 moves toward them with this incredible tenseness, and then out of her erupts. The most incredible scream I've ever heard. She just screamed and screamed and screamed, and goes to the the dead bodies of her children, you know, and 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 uh, and then we have the whole thing of her, uh, you know, keeping the animals away, and then David hearing about it, and you know, bringing the bones of Saul and being rescued, and or coming together to bury all the bones together, and then God healing the land after that reconciliation but that scream from olena and uh when we did the the kind of the debrief from the group it was like that was the moment for everybody they they just talked about that was the most riveting moment was when she screamed and she came to me afterward and she said thank you that was the work i needed to do Mm -hmm. she said for two years I've been just bottling up all the horror, trying to survive from one day to the next to the next with this artillery going on, you know, explosions all around us. And um, and she said, I just needed to let that out. And I feel so much, so much better. Uh, thank you. I needed that. and And she was kind of the one that kind of did that on behalf of everybody who participated, experienced it in a cathartic way. And I think that's one of the things that is going on right now is that, you know, how do we, people living in trauma, uh, you know, I've seen some stories from Ukraine. Uh, One, this family of four that were trying to evacuate. They were in a car caravan and some of the family were in other cars, but uh, this uh, father and his mother-in-law, grandmother of, the two kids one of them 10 months old and the russians at the checkpoint just opened fire killed them all and you know and it's like the 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 horror and the 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 rage you know that that comes and uh at the bruce coburn concert you know he did this song if i had a rocket launcher out of his experiences in central america and mm-hmm. i think any war zone you go to when you see what happens to to people you know Right now, what's happening in Ethiopia? You know what's happening in Myanmar. What's happening in Ukraine? What's happening in Yemen? Uh, and then all kinds of things, you know. And we've got, of course, our own histories here. You know, between slavery and contemporary racism, and what happened to the indigenous peoples in the Americas. You know, we've got, we've got our hands full of these historic uh, horrors and traumas. That. Carry on, and mm-hmm. you know that we, we still live out. Uh, we Sharon and I did some work with Menachem Resma's book about, um, uh, do you know that my grandmother's hands? You I've would love that. Yes, I have, yeah. Oh, and he'd worked with the Minneapolis uh, police at one time, <laughs> you know. But he talks about black lives, uh, black bodies, excuse me, black bodies, white bodies, and blue bodies, and the way that trauma gets into us and how we. The trauma working its way out. You know, he's African American and trying to, uh, uh, but and, and it was interesting because he talked, he talked about how how many times as we had that whole thing of the Gibeonites being the traumatized people and they take it out on the the oppressor, the the, the, the sons of Saul, and uh, and how you know white. Europeans went through horrific trauma in Europe and then they came and displaced that onto African bodies mm-hmm. you know and African bodies took on all the the garbage if you will if I'm trying to tone it down <laughs> you know uh, all the trauma there and and you know and, and just that we often and when we're traumatized and if we don't deal with it in a healthy way you know we can internalize it against ourselves or we can you know then displace it against somebody else the kick the dog syndrome you know Mm -hmm. i can't i i'm powerless to do anything so i you know abuse in the family or kick the dog but so here i am a white guy uh european english scottish descent proud that i got this family tree and and uh and after reading menachem uh i went back and uh Looked at my family tree and I found this guy in England who was in my family tree who was involved in a political thing. And he was drawn and quartered, which means that they took, you know, tied ropes to his, his ankles and his wrists, put horses on each end that rode in opposite directions, just ripping his body apart. And I thought, there's my, you know, some of the horrors in my European history. And then we come to the to the u.s uh to the americas and what do we do you know how do we how do we act out uh that displacing it on others i think in ukraine right now we're seeing russians who had this superpower the soviet union mm-hmm. and then it disintegrated and they lost so much and they you know the country broke up into Ukraine and Russia and Belarus and Georgia and the baltic et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, and and uh, and so this kind of shame and humiliation and I think that's what's driving Putin a lot is this uh, this you know trying to get it uh, uh, get back that pride. And of course, they're doing it in such a horrific way, such a horrific way. And they're they're not making the Ukrainians love them.
1: <laughs> no, I, I I think one of the things that though has been fascinating, and you've probably seen these stories too and and, and pictures. Um, probably the most famous so far is a picture of a, a young Russian soldier be, um, um borrowing a phone um, and being given tea to drink yes um, he's calling his mom back in russia and these ukrainians are giving him tea and it's it's kind of a fascinating photo to see in the midst of all of this yes um this act kind of act of of reconciliation but do you see that kind of replicating itself does it have an have an effect and as this know crisis still continues how much more challenging is it going to be to do things like
2: that yes yes oh that's a great question and and uh ukraine has has a lot of people over a million people who are veterans of nonviolent struggle Mm. Uh, there was an Orange Revolution, they called it, yep. that uh, overthrew a, a, a Russian-leaning president. People say, "No, no, we want to be." And uh, that, I forget what year that was. Maybe twenty thirteen, uh, something like that.
1: Well, there was uh, two thousand four or five was the Orange Revolution. Okay, and then the Maidan was twenty fourteen.
2: Maidan. So 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 Maidan. It uh, took about uh, three months, it, mm-hmm. it, and there's a wonderful Netflix documentary on it called um, Winter on Fire, or mm-hmm. Winter of Fire, Winter on Fire. And and uh, Netflix just recently made it available for free on YouTube as a part of their connecting to the struggle. It's an incredible d- documentary. I had taught... Uh, just a few months before Maidan I'd p- teaching at the at the seminary. And so so uh you know all these seminary students are now Facebook friends. And and I was getting messages from them from Maidan saying they're shooting at us, they're shooting at us, because you know the 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 government, which was a Russian controlled, you know, Russian leaning president that had uh uh was backing off of some agreements they thought were gonna go the to, time to Europe. That's what ignited Maidan. And and uh uh and the the government stationed um snipers on the rooftops of government buildings and started shooting down in this crowd and and um Uh, and all kinds of things went on and it wasn't a pure nonviolent revolution because some of the people took, you know, Molotov cocktails and garbage cans for lids as shields and, you know, rocks and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but, uh, they eventually, you know, brought down the government. The guy fled to Moscow, uh, Mm -hmm. buddy of Putin. And immediately after that is when Putin seized the Crimea, uh, and then later, the the eastern Ukraine. So Maidan was, I think, the po- the point of the struggle, which said, "We are Ukrainians; we're not Russians." Now, part of their story is under Stalin, three million Ukrainians had died in famine. Mm-hmm. That was not, you know, it was a state organized famine, and part of it was to strengthen Russian control ethnically, and that happened a lot uh, in um, under Stalin. So they remember that, and but. They also feel this connection with Russia, and you know a lot of Ukrainians spoke more Russian than they did Ukrainian, and um, so so there's this 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 deep, broad, experiential base, mm-hmm. and I think that's showed up some already, and sometimes very strong. You know, th- there was a kind, gracious thing uh, in the f- sharing the phone and tea. There was also the woman who was. Uh, f- videoed uh, putting uh, sunflower seeds in mm-hmm. uh, soldiers saying you know when you die i want a flower to grow up at least you know I, but it's nonviolent. Uh, but um and and already i heard just today in one of the cities the, the few cities that russia has taken control of there's protests going on already yes i've
1: seen those pictures
2: yes amazing. and that's just amazing amazing um and and uh and the, the connection where, where they're trying not to demonize Russians. So even Zelensky has been speaking directly to Russian people. And, and uh, of course, they're getting their own you know, media that you know, Putin controls and so on. But some of these links that are coming in. Um, one of the things that's really rough uh, for ordinary people is, is that, and, and this is what Russia is doing now, is that they're not fighting a military battle they're instead using bombardments and missiles and air attacks to to just destroy everything and and uh, uh, and it's easy to do because there's a distance between the uh, person who's launching that artillery shell or firing off the missile and the people that are hurt when you, when the soldiers get into the communities, they're seeing the people mm-hmm. you know and so so there's a face. there's that old woman. Do I shoot an old woman that's like my grandmother? you know um, And so it becomes a humanized kind of thing and and uh and so a part of the leadership level is separate as much of the violence from close encounters as possible. Because that allows the killing to be done uh, without the conscience being stirred, um, but and so we're seeing that happen right now. Um, so right now it's really really tough. Um, and but uh, there's also the thing, uh, kind of the sense in which I think peacemakers need to need to um, need to have a mindset a lot like. Uh, soccer players, or as in Ukraine, they would call it football, you know. (laughs) And in soccer, you don't kick the ball to where the person is. You kick the ball to where they're going to be. And so as peacemakers, you know, if we completely get, you know, oh, today's news, and, you know, I'm doing it like everybody else, you know, just looking at today's news, what happened, what happened, what happened. But peacemakers need to also be thinking, you know, down the line, where are things going to be? And some of that is, you know, happening now. And how to uh, stand with the grandmothers and the, you know, people in occupied areas now with the soldiers, interacting with them in humane ways. Um, uh, how to connect with Russians who are protesting in Russia. Um, but you know, one of the things uh, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount uh, talked about uh, gave three examples of. Uh, Uh, Turning the other cheek, giving the cloak, going the second mile, which uh, we in our training we unpack that a lot, and a lot of it is in these face-to-face encounters with an oppressor Mm -hmm. of one kind or the other, and uh, and in all of them, Jesus is calling people to claim your own humanity. Uh, I'm not a victim. Uh, You know, I'm a human being, and I'm not going to play the role of the victim. And and uh, and say, so how can we then do that, but in a way that doesn't take away the humanity of the other? So hearing that story about the and seeing it, the the, the cup of tea shared with the, the Russian shol- soldier, uh, I heard a, a TED talk of, by a U.S. veteran from Iraq who was in this he was kind of the commander for this uh, small group you know it's like platoon commander or something like that but they were supposed to sweep this area for guns and they just went into this house and they just tore it to pieces looking for weapons and the guy served them tea the homeowner Mm he and it's like he wasn't transformed in that moment but he was haunted by it and he he realized all of a sudden who's the one wrong here? We're demonizing that other guy, but I'm destroying his house, even as he serves me tea, and and it it changed the narrative in his mind that he had got from you know the U.S. media, U.S. government, you know his military training and all that, but it's the human interaction, and uh, and that. And he's now, you know, been involved in all kinds of transformative things. Um, But it was the cup of tea that changed it all for him. So who knows what will happen to that Russian soldier, Mm -hmm. you know, and and others. And we sometimes think it's got to be an immediate response. But it can sometimes, you know, profound change can take a while, you know. It's like playing a seed. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, so anyway, all those kind of things are, you know, boiling in me, you know, and and, uh, and I just pray for my Ukrainian friends. Who, but I also pray for my Russian friends. One of my students, Sharon, and I had a wonderful time with this student who's from from Moscow in 2019, and she does she does um, work with women who have been cast off socially for whatever reason, some of them battered women, some of them have been in the sex trades, you know, just all kinds of things. And she works, her ministry has been with these women doing amazing work. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, Russia, yeah, this sister's there, you know, she's one of them. And, you know, I can't demonize them all because she's part of that. And, um, and, uh, we, we have a friend who is a church planter in St. Petersburg and she's, she and her family have had to flee. Uh, but she's just heartbroken because she knows so many Russians and loves them, and, and, but sees this, you know, horrific stuff going on. And so I think, you know, it's really important for us not to demonize the other. And, uh, one of the things, Bruce, Bruce Coburn, we just saw him last night in concert. You know, he did If I Had a Rocket Launcher, but he also did this song called Orders where he talks about, uh, you know, all kinds of people, good people, bad people, you know, all these you know different things. And he says, and our orders are to love them all, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, okay, that says it right there for us. You know, how do we do that in the middle of such a horrific, horrific war?
1: Yeah so we've you have talked about the song if i had a rocket launcher and i think there is and i think i've read something on in your facebook page about the place of rage yes um in all of this and what does it mean to have a sense of anger about injustice yes. Yes. but not demonize yes a person that's maybe causing the injustice yes
2: Yes, 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 yes. So, so one of the things we did in terms of trauma is that what often happens is that we, when we're victimized, we bottle things up. Mm-hmm. And there's a Christian version of that in that we forgive people too quick. You know, mm-hmm. we preach that, you know, you're feeling all this hurt and anger. You know, what do you do? Forgive. You know, and it's like, that's what my mom did to me. You know, say, forgive your brother. You know, that's kind of. All right, I, I forgive you. You know, she makes you shake hands, and you're gritting your teeth. And fortunately, as kids, you're more resilient. But they know, f- for us, and and you know, the traumas that we go through, um, one of the things that we see in a, a healing trauma is is the, the the importance of of venting those feelings, letting them out. You know, and I, I think of Rizpa, she her her you know, her sister-in-law or whatever, disappeared. Rispa went out into a public place where the slaughtered, t- and she stood there, and it's like she's saying, take a look at this. Don't look the other way. This is awful what happened. This is horrible injustice. And I think that that's part of what we, you know, need to have that rage to say this is what happened. And But the Bible says be angry, but don't sin. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that a lot of us think, ang- a lot of us Christians, I should say, a lot of us Christians think being angry is being sinful. No, you know, Jesus was angry and he got angry when he saw what oppression was doing to people. And, uh, and uh, so I think I th- that you can't get to reconciliation. You can't get to treat healing. You can't get to transformation, transformation without uh, acknowledging something horrible went on. And there's two ways that can happen. One is the expression of rage, but the other is lament. And I don't think we do much lament in our, there's plenty in the Bible. We've got a whole book called Lamentations, mm-hmm. which so fits what's going on right now. The city of Jerusalem being destroyed by the superpower. But right in the middle of that is the famous line that we have a great song that came from it you know the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they're new every morning great is thy faithfulness mm. but we want to do great is thy faithfulness forgetting the lament <laughs> forgetting the pain forgetting the rage you know and and I, I think that that a part of it is to you know how can we be angry but not sin and a, and a part of it is is to remember the humanity of this person who's doing terrible things. How can we pray for our enemies? You know, gosh, that's the worst commandment Jesus ever gave to us is to, to love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And, you know, it's like uh, uh, that's, a, that's a part of it. Um, I, had, I had an experience with Fjordor, interestingly, in Bosnia. It's right after, actually 10 years after the Bosnian Civil War, but the divisions were still so deep and profound. And we had a group of people for a Bible study that Fjordor and this uh, other missionary called together. We had Serbian, ethnic Serbs. This is in Bosnia, but ethnic Serbs, mostly women, mostly Baptist. Uh, and Muslim Bosnian war veterans who were in a post-traumatic support group so these are traumatized muslims and we're having bible study together i mean i've never had as unique a group as that <laughs> together and and so we got into the Rizpah story and uh uh and when we did the part about the gibeonites being traumatized this bosnian muslim army veteran said Now I understand the Serbs. He Hmm. said, they call me a Turk. I'm not a Turk. But it was the Turks who had invaded and brought Islam to that area and, you know, butchered Serbs. And that happened centuries ago, but it was in the forefront of their cultural consciousness and awareness. So much so that that was what they called Muslims, Turks, you know. And he, he says... He says, "Now I understand them." So this Bosnian Muslim army veteran, who was traumatized by what the Serbs were doing, he says, "Now I understand the Serbs," and so with compassion, you know, the compassion he was extending it was stunning. And then this, Bos- this uh, uh, Bosnian Serb woman, whose family had been Devastated, She'd lost relatives in the war. And so she knew great loss, too. She turns to the Serb, the, the, the Bosnian Muslim army veteran, and she says, may I pray for you? And then she turned to me and said, I'm not asking your permission. This is between him and me. <laughs> and, and he said yes. And she did this beautiful prayer for the guy that had been the enemy, mm-hmm. but who had also said, you know, express this compassion of understanding to the one who had traumatized him. And it was like we had this moment of phenomenal, phenomenal peace. But this was 10 years after the war. And, you know, and so sometimes, uh, you know, Fjordor and the, the other missionaries from Finland, they, they, they said they had never, ever, ever seen anything like that. And, and uh, you know, but it was just like these two people just stepping out, Uh, you know, Bosnia is uh, very volatile right now. It's still, you know, very, very tough place. And sometimes it feels like we're just doing these little teeny tiny bits of maybe signposts of God's reign. I don't know. Mm. But uh, do you think that sometimes we
1: don't always understand kind of the, the deep wounds that people carry. And, I, you know, I could just say that that's something that happens in, you know, Ukraine or uh, yeah. Serbia, but it also happens here in the States. Absolutely. And so how can we as, as Christians take those wounds seriously? Things that have happened maybe a generation ago, yeah. but to understand they still have an effect now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that, that uh some of the things can be very very helpful one is is finding ways to express our feelings uh and doing that in a context of worship so psalms of lament can be a part of it you know and and kind of opening up those kinds of things uh you know the the african-american community has been so traumatized from you know from slavery jim crow structural racism all yada 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 um and Menachem uh talks about the Res, Menachem talks about the way that gets in our bodies and and he, the in our in many african american churches there's a lot of body expression in worship mm-hmm. and i think that that's something that is actually a has been a a uh, what a seizing hold of healing you know in in some some really special ways, and and uh, and I think that's uh, you know that's 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 a part of the answer. There there may be other pieces that we can do to you know to watch those things where we're trying to stifle it with some religious arts. You know, you should forgive you know uh, versus uh, allowing the expression, but doing it in the presence of the spirit of God. You know. Um, <laughs> And and so that that's a that's a that's a piece. I think um, uh, so. Sometimes even refining the stories that we tell in the Bible, uh, um, naming things. Uh, 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 you know, I I once when I was a pastor named childhood sexual abuse, and <laughs> talk about stuff that then emerged. It's like people felt permission to say something that they'd never, ever, they'd kept, you know, buried for so long. And so, so I think, you know, there's a lot of closets we need to come out of, you know, uh, but to come out of those closets in a context where there's grace, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and to, to, to do that. Then there's hard work, you know, how do we put it together? And one of the things that I think is very important that we sometimes talk about it, uh, is memorializing, uh, and and there's like in the, uh, the, the I haven't seen it yet. I want to go. Is the um, uh, there's a memorial for lynching? Uh, and, oh, in Montgomery. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see that too. Yeah, and one of the things they do is they have they have things for every county in which a lynching took place. Mm-hmm. I know some lynchings happened in Michigan. You know, and and so what would it look like for? You know, for us to find ways to to bring that into our context, to memorialize It gives us a, a chance to let the feelings get out, let the story be told, uh, ritualize uh, uh, to to go back to name names you know uh, in In the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a lot of the namings of the names over and over and over and over again. And that is so so important. In Latin America, they did it with a uh, calling forth the person's name and saying, "Presente, presente yeah, yeah, they're here with us." And uh, uh, you know, when I was in Bosnia, uh, Fyodor lived in the city of Tuzla, which is the only city where the Serbs, Croats, and Muslims didn't break apart. Hmm. They kind of came together, and the memorials are together. You go to other parts of Bosnia, you know, they got the graveyard for the Croatians here and the Serbs over here and the Muslims over there. They're all together in Tuzla. And they have names all together, you know, of everybody that was killed, whether they were Muslim, Croat, or Serb. And, you know, and I think that was very, very powerful, the the importance of names. So I I think that's a very healing thing that is already being done uh, in, in uh in the black lives matter movement and some of the artistic expressions that are coming out, you know, where, where, again, names are so, so important. So I think these are are really, uh, ways for that to happen. And then how can we, how can we then start moving together and, and, uh, and, uh, talking together, I think writing history, that that's one of the things that is kind of toward the end. How can we, write the history in a way that we uh, can all say, yes, that's what happened. We have that in the Rizpa story. We've got a document in the Holy scriptures where everybody, even Rizpah, you know, who's the hero, she comes out of the household that committed genocide, you know? So, (laughs) you know, so, so it's like, it's complex. And, uh, You know, in our country, we don't even know how to call that war in 1861 to 1865. In the North, we call it the Civil War. In the South, they call it the war between the states. And that's because of all the the ideology to protect those in the South, the whites in the South, from recognizing, from owning, not owning slaves, but owning what they did, you know and and uh and so so instead we've got these in fact right now it's happening you know textbooks you know the, the battle of what's said you know and you know critical race theory and all that kind of nonsense that is uh uh i think a mask for for racist agendas and and so but but t- learning how to tell the story so that everybody can say yes that's true and 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 um and that that's a part of the healing of everybody, whites and blacks and Native Americans and folks from Asia. You know, all, all of us can experience that healing together when there's truth. Um, one little piece that we we got from Psalm 85, 10, uh, is... Uh, uh, in Spanish, out of the out of uh, Gustavo piece work, piecework, uh, they they use that verse all the time to open their mediation sessions between the insurgents and the government. And uh, it says in Spanish, uh, "Truth and mercy will come together; justice and peace will embrace." And I think that some of us, you know, no justice, no peace. You know, and it's kind of like. Well, that's true. That's true. Some of us are more justice. Some of us are more peace. Some of us are more truth. Some of us are more mercy. You know, let's forgive one another. You know, uh, can't we all just get along? Uh, no, no, we got to have the truth, you know, and 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 it's like all of those are necessary for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the larger context of Psalm 85, it's like all that comes together for God's work. And so you know, those voices for truth, those voices for mercy, those voices for justice, those voices for peace, they, they, they all have to be there. And, and, uh, and that's a long journey. So what's happening right now in Ukraine, that's going to come to an end at some point. Uh, it may come to an end in the next month. Putin thought it'd come to an end already. Uh, it could drag on for years. Uh, but the journey of peacemaking is, is going to be a generational one. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a generational one, but we also have our g- issues here, you know, cause it's like, uh, in terms of slavery and racism. We're talking, we're talking centuries, you know, 500 years. And, and we still aren't there yet. And, uh, we still got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of pieces and been a lot of progress. I feel very excited about some of the things that have happened and, and, uh, when I see the younger generation coming up, they give me a lot of hope. They give me a lot of hope, uh, and uh, I'm I'm glad to be the old guy passing the torch. But uh, but seeing some of the some of the depth and wisdom that's been hard earned uh, gives me some hope. Well, wrapping this up, I have
1: um, just kind of a question of how are you? Praying for the church in Ukraine, but also the church in Russia right now, because yeah. both of those, I, I have to admit that I have to believe that Christians also in Russia are yeah. disturbed about this. And yeah. you know, you see the pictures of people being willing to protest at the risk yeah. of being jailed. Yes. Um, what? Do you, how do you pray for those churches?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think. I think I pray for them to to be. Uh, first, I pray for people to be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pray for people to f- be able to discern how to be Jesus in their context, um, because there's there's a lot going on. Uh, uh, I pray that they that they will have uh, time and space to process it. Uh, you know, and and a lot of it's going to have to be put off for later, you know, it's like you got to survive. But even in that, even in that, in those moments, there can be ways, and I'm seeing some people take ways, like Fjordor, to, to be transformative, you know, and it's like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna feed people. That's what what our task is going to be. And uh, so, so I pray that people would find Jesus among them. Mm -hmm. You know, because where is Jesus? Uh, It was the old, old, old book. I think it was written in the 1800s called Quo Vadis. They ended up making a movie of it. But they they have this scene that is uh, from church tradition where Nero's persecution was breaking out. I'm going to get choked up. And Peter's fleeing the city. And he meets Jesus going into the city, and Jesus asks him, Quo Vadis, which way are you going? Mm. And uh, and Peter turns around, and he goes back with Jesus, and is crucified, and uh, Peter's crucified. And uh, and I think that, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody who flees and becomes a refugee at all, because You know, Jesus Jesus was a refugee. (laughs) You know, I think of that too, for those who are refugees, to know that Jesus was a refugee uh, to Egypt, fleeing violence. And so praying for the refugees to know Jesus, but also for those, whoever they are, to hear the voice of Jesus and to to feel Jesus with them and following Jesus wherever they are, in Ukraine, in Russia. And what will that look like? Uh, There's a part of us that, Hey, the kingdoms of this world are gonna—they're gonna do their thing, and it's gonna be awful. And sometimes, so many innocent people are gonna pay horrific prices. But um, there's things that are being done now that are gonna be part of God's ultimate revelation, if mm-hmm. you will. And so, my prayer is that people would be tuned in enough to do that, and mm-hmm. and that if I can help them in any way, uh, you know, I think of. Moses, and it's a war image. I hate the war image side of it, but when he's raising his arms in the battle against the Amalekites, he yeah, got tired, yeah. and Hur came on one side, and Aaron's on the other, held his arms up, and and so I see what can I do to hold up the arms of? Yeah, you know, I can't make the decisions. They they they've got to hear from God and do as best they can. But I can be there for them and that's part of what I'm trying to do is my response and prayer for myself in relation to my brothers and sisters
1: well Dan thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and thank you for really this and I think a message of hope um that is really needed right now um not just in Ukraine not just in Russia but even here in the United States so thank you
2: and thank you, Dennis, for the invitation, but also for all that you're doing, which is is a, is a part of that uh, revolution of hope, if you will. God bless you. All right.
1: enjoyed that interview with Dan. Um, it was great to chat with him. Um, I learned a lot, and I hope that you did too. And as I said at the beginning, that there will be other episodes relating to the war in Ukraine, uh, so please stay tuned. Um, as we uh, end this episode, just a few things to remind you about. Um, make sure that you follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, the links are in the show notes. Uh, visit us at org, and you can find um, all, uh, each episode to listen to, but also additional material. Um, if you have a comment or question, uh, feel free to drop me an email at reverendpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I really am looking forward to hearing your questions and comments, so send those emails. Um, and then finally, as I've kind of said before, Consider leaving a rating or a review, five-star rating or review, on your favorite podcast app, um, especially uh, iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Those um, reviews make it a lot easier for other people to find this podcast. This is a podcast that others should know about, and um, I do hope that you can leave a review and also share this podcast with a friend. So that is it for uh, this episode of En Route, uh, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church in Maine. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and see you soon.
0: member FDIC.